Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. It's often said that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the bottom of the ocean of our own planet. But in the last 12 months, that's finally started to change. On August 24, 2019, Victor Vescovo became the first human to dive to the deepest point of all five of the world's oceans. This was the final stage in what is now known as the Five Deeps Expedition, a series of deep dives in a submersible craft known as the DSV Limiting Factor. We're very thrilled to be able to welcome Victor to Talking Australia today. All the way from his home state of Texas in the USA. Welcome, Victor. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us, Victor, uh, what made this moment so significant, sort of in terms of ocean exploration? Well, as you alluded to, it's extraordinary that uh, 70% of the world is covered by ocean, and of that, only 90% has even rudimentarily been explored. So more than half of our planet is truly unexplored. And I was amazed to discover four and a half years ago that no individual had been to the bottom of four of the five of the world's oceans. And yet we'd been to the bottom of the world's oceans, the Mariana Trench. So I started thinking, how difficult would it be to actually assemble an expedition and the vessels necessary to actually do that? And uh, one thing led to another. And I think we reached a nice intersection of technology and financial capability uh, for myself to put it together. And so we spent four and a half years uh, designing and building a submersible that could do this and then uh, launching the expedition. But in the past, how often has anybody actually attempted to explore the bottom of the ocean? The U.S. Navy sent down the first submersible to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, but that was a government military operation. And then in 2012, James Cameron designed and built here in Australia the Deep Sea Challenger, and it made one visit to the bottom of the Challenger Deep. But only Richard Branson, I believe, tried to put together an expedition to do what he called the five dives. But they had some technological choices that didn't pan out, and they were not able to even make uh, the first dive. So I took some of the lessons from James Cameron's expedition, Richard Branson's attempt, and a lot of other research into deep submergence expeditions. And, you know, as they say, the wise people learn from other people's mistakes or, or their attempts, and that's what we did. And, and we were very, very fortunate that uh, our expedition uh, was successful. So really, in the whole of sort of the human exploration of this planet, only twice before had anybody been to the deepest parts of the ocean. Right, and no one had even tried to go to the bottom of the four other oceans in any significant way. So why do you think that? It, why do we put so much time and effort and, and imagination into going to outer space? We've got this whole undiscovered part of our planet. What? Why? Why do we not sort of make this a priority? It's interesting. We actually discussed this with uh, some of the psychologists or Dr. Glenn Singleman, who's from Australia, and there are some interesting theories about it that go deep into psychology. Human beings, by their nature, are afraid of drowning, and we're afraid of the wild oceans that we see on the coasts. And it's a forbidding place. You don't see what's down there. 
you can see the beautiful mountains and you want to climb them. And space has the beautiful stars. And everybody knows what an astronaut is. But if you ask someone, what do you call someone who goes in the deep ocean? No one even really knows if it's an aquanaut or a submariner. We just don't really have an intense interest to see what is down there because it's deep and it's dark and it's cold. And yet it's most of where we live. And it has far more impact on us than does outer space. It is part of the life cycle of this earth. In fact, most of the biomass of this earth is in the ocean. The oxygen is generated in the ocean. It's essential to life on land. I think we're really only now coming to appreciate that as we know that those oceans are becoming increasingly challenged by climate change and other uh, impacts like uh, pollution and plastic. Of course, it's been a com- big conversation of the last uh, couple of years. Uh, I think the, the, the role that the ocean plays in our lives is, is something that's not really been explored too much either, just like the oceans themselves. Right. I think as people become far more interested in climate change on the land, I think people are waking up to the fact that, well, if 70% of the Earth's surface is the ocean, I guess we better understand it a lot better mm-hmm. if we're going to understand climatology and what we can do to improve our lives here and, and forestall some of the significant changes that are happening. So to, uh, to do that, we need more understanding of the ocean. And to do that, you need new vessels. So the five deeps, mm-hmm. what are they? It's interesting, when we first started this expedition, uh, some people uh, really didn't know uh, even how to define where the Southern Ocean is. That's still under Mm -hmm. debate. But they are the uh, Puerto Rican Trench in the Atlantic, the southern portion of the South Sandwich Trench in the Southern Ocean, the Java Trench in the Indian Ocean, the Mariana Trench in the Pacific, and then the Malloy Deep in the Arctic. But what's fascinating is just four years ago, it wasn't clear where the deepest points were in the Indian or the Pacific Oceans. People were pretty sure it was the Java Trench in the Indian Ocean, but off the coast of Australia in the Diamantina Fracture Zone, there was some debate that actually it was deeper because no one had ever really explored it. So we did that. We had to go to both places. <laughs> we mapped them and, and dived both of them, and they were within about 100 meters of each other, a couple hundred meters. And then in the Pacific... There was a debate whether the Challenger Deep and the Mariana Trench or the Tonga Trench was actually deeper. And we dove both, and it turned out that the Tonga Trench was only about 100 meters shallower than the Challenger Deep. So it was really close. But we did validate that, uh, you know, the deepest point in the ocean is indeed the Challenger Deep. So this was not a case of that these were established places. You had to actually establish where they were and then go and dive on them. Yeah, there was a funny moment early on where I asked my chief scientist if we needed a, a sonar system to map the trenches because obviously I went to Wikipedia and they showed, well, here's where the deepest points are. And he laughed on the phone and said, no, Victor, that's complete rubbish. We are going to have to invest in a sonar system and you will have to map the trenches in a very detailed way to make sure you dive in the right place. You certainly don't want to dive on this expedition, then a couple of years later find out you dove in the wrong place. Mm. And so we put the most advanced sonar system available on any civilian vessel on our ship, and we mapped the heck out of these trenches and did identify the deepest points and then dove them. So you started, the, I guess, the process of, you know, thinking of it as expanding the bounds of human knowledge even before you started the dive because you're, you're mapping somewhere that's never been mapped before. Well, it, it was fascinating to go through the process of an expedition like this because I initially approached it as what an adventure for, frankly, myself to go do because I had been mountain climbing for many decades. I was looking for another challenge, and this seemed extraordinarily exciting. You know, brought out you know, the real explorer in myself or anyone else associated with the expedition. And then it became a technical challenge. Okay, we need to build a submarine that can do this, which has never existed before, that can repeatedly and reliably do repeated dives to extreme depths. That has never existed before. So that was a, a fun challenge, a little bit of the engineer in me. 
But then it became, well, we're also going to have to map the ocean. Okay, that became a mapping challenge, mm -hmm. so we need a sonar. Mm -hmm. And then I got involved in the science. Well, if we're going to go to all these places, why don't we bring back biological samples? Why don't we do water column analysis and all these other It just all grew out of it. So it was very exciting to start with this small kernel of an idea of just doing an adventure. And it just became this very large, fascinating project that had so many facets. And did you yourself, was what 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 was the bit of it that that appealed to you given as you said before you've climbed mountains you've been to the north pole you've been to the south pole you're now what we would call like a polar adventure or a mountaineer yeah. or something like that what part of that whole sort of multidisciplinary kind of approach was the bit that really captured your imagination it has evolved Initially, it was going to these places that no human has ever been to, to go to the bottom of the Atlantic and, and verify that that's where it was. The discovery and the exploration was the first thing that really hooked me. But frankly, as we got further and further in the expedition, I became more hooked by the science because mm. we discovered over 30 or 40 new species and wow. brought them up and we were seeing things and animals no one had seen before. We are still looking at things on the videotape that we took that are inexplicable to current science. And uh, people are going to get to see those when the Discovery Channel actually airs a five-part series, one for each ocean, uh, I think this February. And so we're looking forward to sharing all this imagery and people will get to see what we saw. Extraordinary, extraordinary scenes. I'm really looking forward to seeing that documentary mm -hmm. and seeing what you saw. But which of those geographical locations presented the biggest challenges for you? Well, the challenges were different. Some were technical, and that would have been the early dive in the Southern Ocean. There was a joke that uh, we were going to a place on the map. When you look at the old maps, it says, here be dragons. <laughs> and it was quite accurate. The <laughs> storms were quite stormy. We had snow. And we were still a little early in the process of launching and recovering the submarine. We actually had a collision between the sub and the ship, which was not fun because I was in it at the time. <laughs> right. But uh, from that, we learned a lot, and that never happened again. So technically, that was most challenging. The dive off the coast of Indonesia was the most challenging from a permitting standpoint. The Indonesian government was very sensitive about diving in their economic exclusion zone, and it was very difficult to get permission. And so that was a, a, a administrative difficulty. And then the Mariana Trench was, of course almost a psychological or mental battle going down so deep and pushing the technology to its absolute limit and wondering, hey, is this all going to actually work? So each dive really had its own unique characteristics and challenges. And the Southern Ocean, when you talk about that one, that was that, so that near, near the Antarctic, were you down sort of near South Georgia? Is that yeah, the area? Southern Ocean is usually defined as the water below 60 degrees south latitude, mm. uh, just a circle. And it's interesting, the South Sandwich Trench cuts across that line. So part of it is in the Atlantic and part is in the Southern Ocean. And no one had ever mapped or even explored that portion of the South Sandwich Trench in the Southern Ocean, which we were pretty confident that's where the deepest point was. And so we had to map it and we found it. And what's fun is because we mapped it, found it and dove it, we get to name these locations. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's, we had a lot of fun on the ships figuring out <laughs> what we're going to name all these places. Tell us, just give me a couple of names that you might have named. Well, <laughs> you can't just name it whatever you want. We found out that there's a convention about how you name undersea features. Mm -hmm. And and traditionally, the deep points are named after the ship that discovered them. Nice. So the deepest point in the Southern Ocean, we're going to try and name after the submarine. We're going to try and call it the Factorian Deep, after the submarine, the limiting factor. 
and the deepest point in the Indian Ocean I'm trying to get named the Pressure Deep after the support ship that launched the submarine, the Pressure Drop. So that goes with tradition. Mm. But uh, the other thing, just for people's edification, all these other features we found in the South Sandwich Trench, there was only one really big named feature, and it was the Meteor Deep, after the Meteor, a German ship that found it way back when. And so we're going to name all these other features after Meteor Showers or astronomical objects. And we're sure that that will get passed by the authorities yeah. in Monaco that you know, have purview over this kind of thing. But we are now you know, scratching our heads wondering what we're going to name all these other features that we found in the <laughs> so Pacific Ocean and everything else. I mean, we're running out of names. <laughs> well, that's a good problem to have. As an explorer, oh, I, I mean, that's uh, the, the problem of riches. It's wonderful. Uh, that's wonderful. So this is the sub. Let's talk about the sub. Sure. Um, this is how you got there. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was obviously quite a big technological leap forward yes. in terms of how it came about. So tell us a little bit about what the challenges are I mean, we know it's cold. We know it's the, the pressure's huge oh, down there. And, there are many. Uh, but what, tell me what's the sort of, in our kind of, lay, you know, if we're not very, te if someone's listening right. and they're not that technically minded. Sure. In, in sort of layman's terms, what, what's, what's the sub made of? The, the sub is primarily made of titanium, but also something called syntactic foam, which actually was invented here in Australia by Ron Alleman, who I have enormous respect for. And it's basically glass uh, beads that are filled, that are hollow, that are in an epoxy matrix. So it's buoyant in water, and yet it does not compress, which is exactly what you need mm -hmm. for a full ocean depth submersible. And think about the you know, military submarines that you see in the movies. The crush depth for a military submarine that uses compressed air for ballast is about maybe 500 meters, maybe even mm -hmm. 800, and we're going down to 11,000. So the pressure is just extreme. We're talking 16,000 pounds. I'm American, so I speak in town, pounds mm -hmm. per square inch, which is extra eight tons per square inch. And the submarine has to be able to withstand that pressure and then come back up. And this is a key point, do it repeatedly. Mm -hmm. So you're stressing all the systems, every one of them on the submarine over and over again to that level of compression and then relaxing it. And metals and materials and circuits don't like doing that, so you have to build in reliability to be able to do that, which we did. You're also in a very cold environment. It gets to basically freezing by the time you get to the bottom of a trench. It doesn't allow radio signals, so everything has to be done acoustically. So when I was on the bottom of the Mariana Trench, it took seven seconds for any transmission to reach me, back and forth. So it was like being on the moon. And then, of course, you're in salt water, so everything is corrosive. Yes. And if you just, again, back to the pressure, when a spaceship goes from the Earth into space, it's going from one atmosphere to zero. Our vessel was going from one atmosphere pressure to basically a thousand wow. repeatedly over and over again. So trying to develop a system that can accommodate all of those extreme features is very difficult. That's why I think at the time we dove the Mariana Trench, 12 people had walked on the moon, but only three had ever been to the bottom of the ocean. And that's because technically it's very difficult. Yeah. It's not. It's incompatible with human life. I think <laughs> it is true. But that's the the wonder and the glory of uh, human beings. If there's one thing that we do is we figure stuff out. We have this amazing ability to adapt, and we can take these fragile bodies that we have into the most extreme environments to do exploration. Now you were the pilot, mm -hmm. uh, but there's room for two people. Yes, that was important to us. Where it would have been cheaper and simpler to build a one-person submersible, mm -hmm. and James Cameron's was a one-person submersible mm -hmm. made out of steel. But we thought it was very important from a scientific standpoint to be able to have a pilot and then a scientist or a passenger to go down and experience the deeps. And we're very glad that we did that now because now we have a reusable system that really can be used for science in a predictable way. 
And tell me about when you went... So you went down alone, but you've, have you taken a passenger down? Oh, very often. Typically, the first dive down to a deep place, I would do solo. Mm. But then on successive dives, I would take a passenger, usually mm-hmm. a scientist. And people often ask me why I do that. And the best analogy I can make is it's just a, it's a very different experience to do mm-hmm. a solo dive, especially into an extreme place like these deep trenches or at the Titanic, and then do it with someone else. Imagine yourself getting into your own car and driving to a national park you've never been to, and you're doing it completely by yourself, and then you get out and you walk along the trees you know, by yourself and you come back. And now imagine doing it with three of your best friends with some beer. It's a very different experience, those two. One is not necessarily better than the other, they're just very different, and so I prefer doing both. We'll take a quick break and be back in a moment. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you'll receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all our products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Tell me also, when you were down there, on going down to those very, very deep points in the ocean alone, what does it feel like inside there? Do you get, I mean, are you cold? Are you, is it hot? Do, do, you know, what, what does it feel like inside that right. sphere? The first impression you get, which the scientists and other passengers that have been in the submarine, that they're most struck by when you begin diving is within about 30 or 40 meters, within about 15 seconds of diving, people say how quiet and how calm it is. It's so peaceful. You don't even get a sense of motion when you're in the sub. The only thing that's really indicating that you're going down are the displays that are showing that you're going deeper and deeper and it's getting less and less light and it's getting darker. Inside the capsule, it's very comfortable. It stays at one atmosphere. There's no decompression that's Mm -hmm. required. That's the beauty of the 90 millimeters of titanium that's surrounding you. You can stay at one atmosphere. But it does get colder the deeper you go. But it happens very slowly. Think about it. You're in a large metal ball, and it cools down to the temperature of the outside water. So by the time you get to the bottom of, say, the Challenger Deep, it's basically about 40 degrees. Mm -hmm. After a few dives like that, we put in some heaters, but they generate... Uh, a lot of uh, a modest amount of heat, but they consume a lot of electrical power, which mm. is the lifeblood of the sub. And so there's a medium there. So we try and take the edge off the cold, but it typically will be about 45 degrees inside. So you you bundle up a little bit after the first hour or two, but it's not too bad. I've had far worse at the poles. And does that mean that you dressed, you wore particular kind of clothes? Yeah, I'd wear a heavy be... sweater, a hat, and sometimes even gloves by the end of a dive. Yeah. And do you, um, when you're in, so let's just take one of those places, maybe not the deepest one, just a sort of averagely deep one, maybe in the Indian Ocean. <laughs> yeah, and an average deep dive, say, to the bottom of uh, the Pacific in a flat area is about five or 6,000 metres, which is still deeper than virtually any submarine can go. <laughs> yeah, so how long does it take once you, so that you get dropped into the, mm-hmm. not dropped, or placed on uh, into the water mm-hmm. by the uh, pressure drop, which yes. is your, your service ship? Then when you start to go down to the bottom, how long does that actually take to get down there? It takes about uh, four hours to get to the bottom of the Challenger Deep. So an average, you know, a medium dive to say 5,000 meters halfway there would be about two hours. And then we try and spend, you know, three hours, four hours on the bottom and then another two or three hours coming back up. Yeah. 
So those can be long days. So you take your sandwiches with you. Yeah, and you, my and infamous you. tuna fish sandwich and, and crisps. <laughs> and that's my. That, now I'm superstitious. That's now the only thing that I eat on my dives because I've never had a major incident. So now, you know, like a typical pilot, I have my superstitions. And are you taking sort of, I mean, is it, does the submarine sort of have like arms and little sort of things on it that collect water samples? and? Yeah, it has a manipulator like arm. Right. And... On my dives, I also have three landers that are basically robots that go down with me. And they go down before the submarine. They land on the bottom, and they provide navigation beacon services for the submarine, so I know kind of where I am. But they also have the ability to do core samples. They have baskets I can put things in with the manipulator arm. They're collecting water. They're taking readings on the temperature and the salinity of the water. So the landers, in some respects, offload some of the scientific burden of the submarine. So the submarine can focus on investigation. Its primary objective is to move around and videotape things and see things because the landers are stationary. Mm. But if I find something interesting, I can pick it up and go put it in the lander. Right. So you you, you sort of manipulate the mm -hmm. arm and it's got like sort of... A rock or something, yeah. Right. And you can put it into the... Yeah. In the lander? Yeah. And then you take that back up? And then the lander comes up on its own. Right. Yeah. Okay. And are those landers just made of titanium as well? Do they have no, to be No, they're made just made of aluminum. So right. they don't have any human beings in them. Yeah. So they can be more, let's just say they don't have the same requirements. And so they're simpler to build. Although the instruments that they have have to go all the way down to the bottom of the ocean as well. So that's the real trick is having these sensors, these communication devices that can work at full ocean depth. Hmm. But so this is our te the technology is also the, all about getting a human being down there and getting mm -hmm. them back safely. So that's why the technology has to be so kind of co uh, complex mm -hmm. and, and so sort of state of the art. What is the argument for not sending humans down and actually sending remotely operated vehicles down to do mm -hmm. all that exploring? What's the difference for you between just sending a robot down to collect all that data and actually sending a human being right. to the bottom? Well, there are a couple of answers to that. It's kind of interesting because right now as we sit here, the deepest diving scientific platform that exists is this man submersible. Right. There is no remotely operated or autonomously operated vehicle that can go really down below six mm -hmm. or 7,000 meters to my knowledge. And the issue is if it's an autonomous vehicle, it's just programmed to go down and do something. If there's something interesting, you don't know about it on the surface. It'll come back with its data, of course, but that's what it does. If it's remotely piloted, it needs a cable. Now, if you're going down really, really deep, now you're talking a very long cable, maybe three or four miles or seven miles at the Challenger Deep, which is very heavy and it can break. And the United States had a remotely operated vehicle, the Nereus, that was actually lost in the Kermadec Trench. It was actually imploded. We don't know really what happened to it. Mm. Where I'm going with this is that robots are great and we use them on our expedition. We're looking forward to using them on future ones. They're complementary. And having human beings go down to these extreme places and coming back like I am to talk about what I directly saw with my own two eyes and being able to directly and immediately interact with the environment with a scientist sitting next to me is valuable. And with these wonderful stereoscopic eyes that we have that see in three dimensions, looking out of a portal, I can see things with a resolution and a character that you, sometimes you just don't see on an ROV screen, even mm -hmm. if it's with a fiber optic cable. So I believe it's very complementary. And just like in space exploration, we could just send robots to Mars or to Saturn. 
but there's something qualitatively different about having a human being set foot on the moon or even Mars that just captures the imagination and I think makes us fully realized as human beings. I, I and I, you know, I, I completely agree, and I think that's where I was going with it. I think for us to really feel that we've uh, we've 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 gone forward a step or or a leap or whatever in terms of our human exploration of our world whatever that world might be we we do need to be there ourselves don't we yes we it's do it's not enough for us to send a robot or a camera out there it's part of it's you know the nature of human beings to really be wanting to sort of push the boundaries and and take ourselves to these places right we are not a passive species mm. we explore we do things and we want to bear personal witness to to these events that are out there. Yeah, it's really critical. Now, um, tell me some of the scientific and the, the new discoveries that you made. I mean, there's obviously so many, and you probably take samples of all kinds mm -hmm. of things, and there's a lot of research still to be done because you've done this whole expedition in a very short window of time. Yes. It was very, very fast. Tell us when you actually started. We, t we talked about finishing in August, but mm -hmm. when did you actually begin? The first major dive was in the Puerto Rican Trench in December of last year, and we finished basically in August. Right. But it was very efficient, and that's one thing they were doing. I mean, we literally went around the world into all five oceans, but it was geared that way. We went through 94 iterations of our itinerary because we were constantly adapting but we maintain the efficiency. Uh, because I was basically funding the entire expedition by myself, that was important. But scientifically, we collected so many different types of things. There's the mapping. We mapped an area that had never been mapped with multi-beam sonar, an area the size of Italy, and got to name, we're gonna get to name over 30 or 40 undersea features that no one even knew were there, seamounts or canyons or deeps or ridges. We collected over 300,000 biological samples from the microscopic to the rather large. We think we discovered over 30 new species, according to my chief scientist. We collected data on 1.5 million meters of water, which basically means in all these varied locations around the world, within 10 months, we have the temperature, the salinity, and conductivity of the water in the whole column, which you can use for climate models, because no one does this. Mm. No one captures this information so widely, so quickly, with the same instruments which is like gold to scientists for a uh, baseline for climate models. And then there's all the other things that we captured, you know, the rocks and just the other creatures that we brought up with the landers. So our scientific team is saying we have, they have enough material for literally years mm. of research. And then just recently we were going through the footage, which we're still doing, and we saw something extraordinary in the Mariana Trench at 8,000 meters, which I can describe, that was shown here at the Australian uh, uh, Geographic Awards ceremony last night. We saw something that looked like a colony of very small animals somehow connected to each other with very small protein tendrils in the shape of what looked like a double helix that just mm -hmm. drifted across one of the cameras. And no one has ever seen anything like that before at 8,000 meters or pretty much anywhere. And we have no idea why it's constructed in that way, how it was constructed, even how large it is because the camera cut it off at the top. Mm -hmm. So it's discoveries like that that are so enriching in showing us how little we know about this planet that we still live on. How extraordinary to see something Yeah, like it was that. great. And did you see, so you, you, were you looking through a camera? Were you looking through a window? What, 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 how did you see? Out? That animal in particular was captured on high-definition uh, film from one of the landers. So the landers, uh, this one in particular, just landed at 8,000 meters and did its job. Mm. It was having biological specimens you know, come into its little tubes for capture, and then that film, uh, that camera just kept rolling for four or five hours, and the scientists just watch it to look for something interesting, and lo and behold, they saw something quite interesting. Yeah. 
Now, uh, quite a lot was made of the fact that when you went down to the bottom of the Marias Trench, you saw what looked like it might have been some human detritus at the bottom of the trench. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was unfortunate. I got to the bottom of the Mariana Trench on my first dive, and it was a solo dive, and I was so excited. And I you know, turned the thrusters on, and part of my job was just to explore and see what I could find. And frankly, after just about 15 minutes, I saw something out of the corner of my eye through one of the portals, and it had sharp edges. And nature doesn't do sharp edges like that. And so I moved the submarine over to it closer, and there was definitely some human contamination there. It was probably plastic. It could have been fabric, but there was definitely something that looked like printing on it. And it was about the size of a crisp bag. I don't know if that's what it was, but that's about the size. Mm -hmm. And what was really heartbreaking was as I got even closer to it, I could see that there was a holothorian, a sea cucumber, that was on it and maybe was trying to eat it because they're just looking for anything to consume at that extreme depth. And that was just a punch to the gut. Now that was the only piece of human contamination that I saw down there of that nature, and uh, it was just disappointing. Yeah, but uh, what a shock to yeah. so far down. and uh, Such a remote place, yeah. and there it is. There is nowhere, really, that yeah. is uh, free of, of, of our human footprint. Right, and once it gets into the water, it's going to be difficult to ever get it out because it degrades very quickly in salt water. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned from my scientific team is it becomes microplastics, and those are consumed by the food chain. Mm-hmm. And so there just has to be more care that it can just plastics can just not get into the ocean in the first place. Now, we've seen private enterprise take the lead in space exploration, and you're exhibition is very much private enterprise. Is, is it's that, a wholly a private enterprise. <laughs> is, that what, is that the way forward for exploration now? The, the, I mean, in the past, you know, it was uh, public money, it was governments that uh, sort of led the way and, and mm. private enterprise. Is that, is that the best model? I mean, is that, does it make, mean you're more nimble? You, you're not going through all the red tape? Or what, what, what's the benefit for private enterprise that's leading the way in human exploration? Well, that's certainly true, but I believe I don't believe in binary kind of outcomes. There are certain roles for government. For example, the James Webb Telescope that's going to be put into orbit hopefully soon it will be an extraordinary scientific instrument, and it's in the billions of dollars in terms of its cost. No hum, no person could probably do that except the ultra wealthiest. That's for governments to do. But sometimes when you're looking at pushing the edge of the technological barrier, and there are specific goals in mind, certainly. Individual entrepreneurs like an Elon Musk with SpaceX or Jeff Bezos with, with his rocket program or what we did with the Five Deeps, sometimes we can do things faster and more efficient and take a little bit more risk mm. than government entities ever could. And therefore, that's very much what we did here. And it just is so efficient when you have a single person you know, writing the checks, making the decisions. You can move with the speed that you often don't have in government because the more requirements, the more people that are involved, it just is slower, the more expensive it becomes, and sometimes it never gets done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the way forward. Sometimes, for certain for things. Some, for some things. Right, yeah. and there was no guarantee of success for our expedition or our machinery. Mm-hmm. There were times when we had doubts that some of the features of our submersible were not going to work, but we worked the problem, but there were no guarantees. Mm-hmm. And I think to do what we did required a very tight team that was handpicked, people that knew that they were doing, that did not have to report to any government agencies, didn't have to go to sponsors to claw for funding because we certainly went over budget on some things. We came on budget on other things, but that poses its own difficulties. Mm. So, Victor, 
you know, having sort of hung up the the submarine, the obvious question is, what's next for you? Well, we really haven't hung up the submarine. We ah. actually, it's currently being refitted in Spain. It's getting improved. It's getting better thrusters. We're improving the navigation system. So we're taking her back out in February of next year. We were shocked to discover that actually no one has been to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. Wow. We're talking the Mediterranean, wow. the cradle of Western civilization, mm -hmm. and no one's been to the bottom of the Calypso Deep. We thought someone had, but they haven't. So we're going to go and try and do that, and then we're going to take it back to the North Pacific next summer and go back to the Challenger Deep and do a lot more diving. We're going to take it in a lot of other trenches in that area, the Philippine Trench, the Japan Trench, the hopefully the Kamchatka Trench, and dive those areas and see what is new there? Because these things are isolated from one another. Mm -hmm. And so it's very possible there are species that exist in individual trenches that don't exist anywhere else. Sometimes people think, well, if you've been to one deep trench in the ocean, you've been to, an all, been to them all. That's not at all the case. Mm -hmm. So each one is fertile ground for new exploration. But I have to confess that if you know someone wanted to offer me a ticket to go up into space, I would certainly take it. <laughs> well, let's hope that both of those things happen. They're certainly not mutually yes, exclusive. They are not. And look, it's been wonderful to have you out here, Victor. You've you've come over for the Australian Geographic Awards, mm -hmm. um, and and on a flying visit. Uh, it was a long way to come and a quick turnaround. And we are so grateful to you for coming over and 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 presenting your story of the amazing five deeps expedition our awards and it's been great to meet you and spend time with you and find about a little bit more about uh, what happened there under the water so great. thank you very much no thank you very much as well and i have immense uh, love for the country of australia and we've had australians on our team and it's just a, a wonderful people and culture and looking forward to coming back thank you thank you that's it for today's episode of talking australia if you have questions or comments feel free to reach out write us an email podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic and if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia you'll find special offers for our listeners including 10% of all products purchased in our e-store so don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>